Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Headley Arcus joins us today, a longtime favorite of First Things readers, of course, many, many articles over the years. His influence on editorial understanding of things is incalculable. His books include First Things, an inquiry into the first principles of morals and justice, and Natural Rights and the Right to Choose. His new book is, uh, there are many other publications, but the new book is Mere Natural Law, Originalism, and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. That's our topic today. Uh, welcome, Professor Arcus. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me in. It's great, as always, to be with you. Now, first of all, before we get to the book, why don't you tell us what is happening right now, right at this very second, at the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding, which you direct in Washington, D.C. Anything you want to tell listeners uh, that they should be aware of? Well, it's, uh, we're, we're going to be adding our, our friend Jerry Bradley, my professor. We've been, we've been functioning now for 10 years, and we've been, um, um, we've had one of the signature tunes is, features is a summer seminar for, for young accomplished lawyers newly with newly minted degrees, some on the way to, to clerkship to the Supreme Court. And last year we had something quite different. Someone who came to us after serving in the Supreme Court, clerking for John Roberts. I said, why are you here? I said, I want to get what I didn't get at Harvard. Huh. And, and then the other thing is we have, the real signature thing has been a seminar that brings together some rather gifted teachers of philosophy and law with some stars of the federal bench who want to start Taking natural law seriously again and see how it can be expounded, and the good. Th and so we've been doing this now for ten years with articles and with seminars, and we're going to law schools with it. But also for part of the pitch in this book is the natural law is not something at a, at a, up in the sky; it's accessible to ordinary people. So we want to do these things with ordinary folk and businessmen. And uh, and, what, and the curious thing is now, Mark, is that the, the satisfying thing is that we're finding more and more young lawyers and judges coming over to us. Uh, what did uh, uh, Chris DeMuth said in one of his commentaries in the book, he said, people, especially young people, are coming to realize they're not quite happy with an, a morally agnostic constitution. The things seem to have come awry. We're looking for a jurisprudence that can give a moral account of itself, a coherent account of itself. You know, Hadley, I mean, we, you, you've been arguing this for many years, forcefully. You're reaching high levels of people. Uh, the left certainly is not morally agnostic about, about, about the Constitution. And your, one of your points is this actually is a huge strategic advantage for the left. Sure. Isn't it? 
Yeah, they want to make the case for the rightness of same-sex marriage. And our people say, we don't want to discuss the substance of marriage. So Scalia would say, I want to see, I just don't think that 310 million Americans should be governed by five judges on the Supreme Court. It's constantly cast in terms of, I'm not going to quibble about the, the moral substance of the matter, but rather who really is entitled to make the decision. So that's where the conservative argument has been. And so, to, so the current point is take, having, taking as a cardinal virtue a, a craft of steering around the main questions of, of moral substance. Right. Drives you crazy. I mean, you, you, and it feeds into something you mentioned at the beginning of the book, a certain, quote, passion for relativism, uh, which you see everywhere at the present time, and also that you saw that passion for relativism today brewing in academia decades ago. Oh, this isn't you? new to you. At, and it's not just relativism. I think the passion word needs to be emphasized. Can, can you give us one example of that passion today? Well, you've seen it. You've seen it all. Uh, why, why abortion, the taking of an innocent life in, 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 in the surgery and abortion is undiscussable, as is the question of the homosexual life. These have become utter orthodoxies. In the past, we'd say, well, uh, the homosexual life, I, I, I have an aversion to that. It's a matter of taste, all right? It's not, it's not my taste. But then it was wrong to cast that judgment. Why was it wrong? And same thing with same-sex marriage. What's curious about the current state is that uh, these things have been put beyond the realm of discussion. We don't have any serious, there's even taking offense at having any serious engagement with the reasoning over this matter. And you know, that course of mine, first things, was given at Amherst. And the issue of abortion was the culminating year. So many things led to it in building up the principles that we go there. I couldn't give that course at Amherst anymore. Hmm. It would be say, it would, no, you're, you're against the interests of women. Um, it, you, you, you make me feel unsafe in the classroom. Oh, no, it's quite, it's quite, a, but you saw the thing coming yourself. You had a good, good, you had a ringside seat. Yeah. Uh, at all this. I remember once um, we're hiring somebody from women and gender studies and political science, and I said, could we hire someone for this job who isn't a woman? They said, well, they, they all have been women. I said, I know that, but did you ask them? I mean, did, did you actually get their understanding of what they thought their gender was? Uh, <laughs> so it's, I've, I've never seen this. Look, I never thought I'd live in a society, in a regime, in which a legislature could threaten to punish parents or remove custody if parents saw counsel for their children who were suffering confusion over their sexuality. I just never thought I'd believe to say anything like that. And why? And then woke corporations picking up on this. And what interest do they have? What powerful interest did, did Disney have in the fact that Florida was going to bar the exposure of some of the sensitive material on, on, on transgenderism to people through the third grade. Why did that suddenly become an interest of corporate, unless something has taken hold? Yeah. But what is, what is the preferred position of, of the left in the vanguard now? You, do you see natural law as one antidote to this passion for relativism? Well, of course, the, the natural law is anchored in a moral truth that the law finds its ground in, in moral truths uh, rather than fictions. And the other side, of course, 
the whole scheme of the left is to keep is is the radical detachment of sexuality from nature and from and from truths. So I mean, we've got, look, we had that case, it's our case of transgenderism on the Supreme Court. Give me take we take a minute for this one. Of course. Um, where at, Anthony Stevens professes earnestly that he thinks he is a, a woman. And the, the conservatives have to th come to the judgment with John Neil Gorsuch and four liberals that, yes, for someone to deny that is to engage in discrimination on the basis of sex, as seen as reflected in the, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Acts, by 64 and 72. And if people will refuse to respect that judgment, that he's become a woman, they'll put themselves and their employers in peril for creating a hostile work environment. Now, What's the reaction of the conservatives? They say, well, it's implausible to use that. That wasn't the way sex was understood. That's not the way we think the drafters and people who passed that law understood it. And let's go to the dictionaries. But the point is, that is not going to work. No. Because, you know, I, I said the liberals would play the Lyman Trumbull card from the 1868. Well, Lyman Trumbull, managing the 14th Amendment, had to assure his colleagues up and down that nothing in that 14th Amendment was going to threaten those laws in Illinois, as well as Virginia, that barred marriage across racial lines. And he knew that if he couldn't get that assurance, that 14th Amendment didn't have a ghost of a chance in passing. So people come down and say, just see, we have a fuller understanding of what racial discrimination meant. Lyman Trouble didn't, didn't see the fuller implications arising from his principle. And the same way, we'll have a larger view of what constitute discrimination based on sex. The only way to meet that argument, Mark, is by going beyond the text, going beyond the intentions of those friends, to appeal to the objective truth that lies behind the matter. You know, the doc Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith remarked, said years ago, there's not always been an Italy or Hungary, but as long as there are human beings, there must be males and females. That is the telos, or the meaning of sex. That is the way we must be constituted. And so I'm raising this question. Any ordinary person can know what Stevenson's sex is as soon as he walks into a locker room. So then the question is, why? how much training did it take? How many years and hours of training did it take absorbing theories of social, of statutory construction in order to offer to the public portentously a judgment that any ordinary person could see as ludicrous. So that's part of the, the, uh, the approach of the book, as you Mike, Mark, that the, I want to appeal as with Thomas Reed, the great Thomas Reed, the great Scott, Scott philosopher, the 17th and 18th century. I want to appeal to those, as a ground of the natural law, those precepts of common sense that the ordinary person has to be able to grasp before he starts trafficking in theories. Hmm. You know, that, that line of, Jefferson said, you could give the same moral problem to a plowman and a professor, and the plowman is apt to get it right, yeah. because he will, not, he will not be distracted by these artificial rules, or call them theories. So that's, that's the argument. We, we want to find the ground. Where the American yeah. found this problem? You, not you, in theories. You, you, you quote that letter Jefferson wrote to, was it his nephew? The Jefferson Peter Carr. Peter, David Peter Carr. Carr. Peter Carr. Yeah. Peter Carr. Yeah, I, I've, I've taught that letter before. I, I think it's it's wonderful. What uh, it's very useful for what Jefferson 
explains there. Just quickly on on that Bostock decision, you know, I can't believe that Gorsuch wrote early in that decision that so-and-so identified as a man, you know, and no, no, before his change, he didn't identify as anything. He, he just was what he was. He acted as what he was. He understood what he was. And, and for Gorsuch to adopt this coded ideological word identified, I, I couldn't believe it. You, you, I guess he was adopting their language. Yeah. Uh, as he said, he was assigned at birth. He was assigned to sex as birth. And yeah. So he wasn't actually born a male. Un, yeah. un, uh, unbelievable. This is, anyway, this is, how people drift, this is how people drift into it. So, as Kyle Duncan, our good friend Kyle Duncan, said, refused to start accepting the pronoun that the litigant was offering. You know, no, to do that is to sign on to his prep to premise and virtually decide the case. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Well, you know, Orwell understood this. If you get someone to use your language, you can you can get them to you get them on all the rest. Right, uh, right. So there, there we are. All right, natural law is Cicero our first, our best early source for the understanding of natural law. I'm not sure. He he, he certainly caught this. He caught the sense of it. It'll be the same. We're talking about it will be the same law, you know, in Athens or Rome, and. Uh, be the same all over, as opposed to those rights that arise in in particular enclaves, like the right to use the squash courts at Amherst, or or the fact that in in, in the state of Illinois, you, in the state of New York, you may not be able to apply for a higher subsidized higher rate of education unless you've been resident there. For so that that is a right that's created in the enclave. No, the one thing. Remember the example I used to use was the. Um, the visitor comes from London, says, you've probably seen this now, comes out, lands in New York. We don't have to look at his passport in order to protect him from a lawless assault on the street. We don't think that depends on his citizenship. He can't take himself over to the city college of New York and expect to be enrolled at that rate. Those rate, the rate, special rates of tuition available to New Yorkers. So we say, okay, that first one, there, his right not his right not to be assaulted, not depending on his citizenship. What do we call that? What do we call that? A species of human right? Something that attaches to human beings just by you being human beings? Or when we say, no man is by nature the rule of other men, the way when must be the rulers of horses and dogs. That is grounded in nature. Now, Cicero, had, he, he didn't fill out the argument, you know. Um, but it... it it will come later. We have it with uh, Berlamaqui and the other uh, writers on uh, on on uh, international law. But still, I don't think it's been found really well until really their own day with people like Harry Jaffa and with the studies of Lincoln and understanding what did we really understand natural rights to be. That um, and Lincoln persistently 
drawing that distinction. He said, "What is what is, what is the problem about slavery? Just catching a number of Negroes on the coast of Africa to sell to such as would buy them. He never thought of hanging them for catching and selling wild horses, wild buffalo, wild bear." In other words, Lincoln was a genius in trying to show that the, the ground of the argument was in that nature that separates human beings from other animals, and those rights that attach to human beings will be true where? Wherever mm. in the world that difference in nature remains the same. We can talk about an enduring nature of human beings separating that nature from, from animals. So that that I mean I think this I think this becomes much clearer in, with Lincoln and actually the exposition of those principles when he was debating against yeah. uh, Douglas and Douglas wanted to see all all laws as as, as um, result of positive laws. What what the law what the law is this law is stipulated in any place. What the law in New York or or Virginia would be, so that my right not to be enslaved simply depends on what the the, the majority of me in New York or Virginia make available to me. So it it, it was all there. And uh, what he what he wanted he he couldn't. Lincoln was saying that those rights articulated in the natural in the the Declaration of Independence had a natural foundation. They weren't really positive and local. Yeah, they were grounded in nature, and uh, it's not simply that. And we see it now. It's all people saying that those rights I have through the First Amendment, as though the, as though the absence of amendment that those rights wouldn't be there. I mean, look, the, well, the founders thought. We you know with James, James Wilson, we didn't invent this Constitution for the sake of inventing new rights, but to secure and enlarge those rights we already had by nature. You're not getting them from the First Amendment, for example. Okay. Now, so now this, I, this a, yeah. I mean, I, I was gonna. No, you know, you do you do talk about Wilson on on naturalism. You're the namesake of your of your center, right. Right. Uh, and it really comes down to whether there are any laws that are not invented by men. That this is this is the foundation of natural law. Now, Henry, right. you really Hadley, you don't argue that progressives really dis they may say they disbelieve in natural law they may believe that they disbelieve in natural law but probe enough progressive arguments and you find an assumption of natural law in all that they do is that correct right of course look when you came through with the decision on the board the the, the, the new deal jurisprudence was to back away from questioning what the local legislative majorities were doing, trying to, to uh, explore different, different schemes of, uh, of uh, social construction and, 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 and liberal provision. So the, the, I mean, that, but, but, but when you start moving forward a right to abortion, what the left started doing is saying, no, 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 we're, we're past the New Deal jurisprudence. We want to articulate now principles that rise above the majority. They have it. They're, they're appealing to that logic at all times. Just as with, with same-sex marriage. You know, it's, uh, they make the moral, they think it's right. And so some, our libertarian friends say, well, it doesn't matter for, you, you, can, you can have your cake made by some other baker. And, the, the, and these people say, no, you don't understand. We think it is wrong to deny this. And therefore, you ought to be punished for denying. It doesn't matter that we can get it somewhere else. Our position is deeply rightful. And those who oppose it are deeply wrong. The other side really clings to a sense that they have a moral argument. And our people say, 
Ah, you see, this is what happens when people get you know overly convinced that they they're, they're right. So we'll we'll deal with that. We'll avoid moral reasoning altogether. Instead of taking the problem as one of if if you think the reasoning is specious, show what is specious about the reasoning. What what's false in the argument? Instead of saying, well, we'll show them. They're engaging these moral arguments outside the text, and we'll embarrass them by uh, avo- by foregoing those things ourselves. <laughs> well, it's you, great, I mean, a, a strategic insight. Again, it, it, it's a it's a frustration in the book. Uh, implicit in in many places, you complained uh, there uh, here and and before how a Republican appointed judges who refuse to consider the moral core, the moral truths. Within right. the, the, even within their own decision-making. Now, Hadley, the question is, why have putatively conservative justices or, or judges, Republican-appointed judges, how have they disarmed themselves in this way? Why, why, did, they, why did they do this? Is this the libertarian influence? What, what happened? It's, it's the positive influence. They were, they're convinced that the turns count. They think... And, the Warren Court began to invent new rights, and the invention took a, a, a decisive turn with contraception and with with the decision on abortion. So that there are what they see is the villainy from the very beginning with Roe, the centers of Roe versus Wade. Not that um, what they see is the problem is that uh, these judges moved outside the text to invent new rights that weren't in the text. And the corrective of that is to say, we're going to try to, we're kind of fend off those kinds of uh, of violations and extravagant reaches. We're going to try to fend it off by saying, we're going to stick to the text. And of course, uh, the American founders were persistently moving outside the text to the principles that were there before the text in order to show how the the Constitution is is applied. This is is a very fragile positive existence by people who are afraid of engaging the moral argument. So the, the moral ar- on abortion, the line is, abortion is nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution. H- Hadley, yeah. what are they afraid of? They're afraid of moral reasoning. They're afraid that if you start work, because see behind it is a sense, Scalia used to say, that they can't get any consensus on more. Yeah, that's right. You can't get, the fact that you don't have consensus does not mean there's no truth. You, you can't accept the notion that the presence of disagreement marks the absence of truth. They in, in, in their heart, they will they want to aff, affirm their belief that there are moral truths out there, but in, realistically, they really came to doubt that they could count on people to recognize moral truths sprung from reason. So they're just quite dubious about it, which is why we say they're appealing to history. It's not this is not a right that's been long known. Well, even if it is a right that it's not been long known, that doesn't prove that it should be not it should be not valid right now. That doesn't meet that doesn't meet the argument. But the conservative reaction is they're dubious and um, quite dubious about people affecting to use more reasons because if people will make mis- yeah, it's a great revelation. People make mistakes. They make mistakes all over, and we fall into arguments all over. And the response of all over is to is to Argue the case out on the assumption that we do have access to standards of judgment that we can recognize some plausible or implausible reasons. But the conservative reflex is saying, no, we can't. Giving people a license to start invoking moral reasoning outside the text 
is a, it's a license for arbitrariness. So there's one no, notable one notable line coming through all the time is any judge who moves beyond the text is merely looking inside himself. That is, the assumption is, if he moves beyond the sex, there must be something internally just uh, uh, subjective, internal, with no real truths anchoring your judgments. They assume that outside the text is is moral arbitrariness and subjectivism. They will not acknowledge that there are really truths outside that text. As with the anchoring truth, we don't hold people blameworthy for acts they were powerless to affect. It makes no sense to cast judgments of brave blame or praise on people, but they don't have the power to cause these acts to happen. That was taken by Kant and Thomas Reed as the very first principle of all moral and legal judgment, and so many things in our law can simply be drawn from that anchoring truth. A truth, as, as Reed said, as, as true as any axiom in Euclid. Hmm. Hmm. Let, let, let's apply a little bit to a case that you examine in some detail. It's the first legal test of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's Katzenbach versus McClung. Yeah, right, right. What was the issue in, in that case, and what is your evaluation of the decision in, in, in light of the, these arguments? Well, over the years, the court never really got clear on what the principle was in the case of racial discrimination. We usually raise the question, if we separate the kids on the base of race and so the reading scores go up, has the segregation ceased to be wrong? Was the wrong contingent that spots some performance in the schools? Or was it in principle wrong? And they never, the court never really faced that question. And even Loving versus Virginia on marriage, they never really explained what the principle is. And that's why we have a raging scheme of racial preferences in the uh, college admissions and government contracts. The scheme all throughout the 30s was to, to see it casted in contingent terms. If Saxon family moves into the neighborhood, the whole neighborhood will prosper. If blacks are denied service here, um, if blacks are not denied entrance into this club, they'll not make the connections they need. Okay, uh, it, it, or if you're not, if you don't have access to this law school, you're not going to make the connections you need in other places. And that famous case I cite with uh, Cecil Park. There's a case uh, um, from from Missouri where the law school, where Missouri would not have a law school for black people, but they give them blacks blacks a voucher to be used out of state anywhere. So um, in the case of Cecil Parti, that great uh, that black ward committee in Chicago, he graduated at the top of the state at Tennessee. He couldn't get access to the law school in Arkansas. So he had to choose instead between the law school at the University of Chicago and Northwestern. And he said, I laughed all the way to Chicago. <laughs> in other words, he, he did, but the argument was, you see if he's, he's going to, he's going to, He's going to suffer for some other fault. No, he suffered no material harm as a result of, of that turning away. So the, the problem with Casablanca versus uh, McClung, the first one that tested the Civil Rights Act, and the problem was with the Civil Rights Act, you're not dealing, as with segregation, with a policy of segregation imposed by law. You're dealing now with private businesses, not, not instruments of the state. And it was thought that the best way of dealing with that over the years was the Commerce Clause, which could reach everything. So as Joe Sobin used to say, think of what Stalin could have done if he only had the Commerce Clause. 
so the so the as they try to fit it into the commerce clause, the argument had to run this way. If black people are suffering discrimination as they move into state commerce, fewer black people will move. There'll be fewer people eating in restaurants. There'll be fewer orders for linen, meat, uh, cutlery, you know. And so what's the wrong of what's the wrong done in uh, discriminating based of race in in businesses open to interstate commerce? You're going to diminish the volume of trade and perhaps interfere with the interstate flow of meat. So as my buddy Dan Robinson seems to say, if that's the problem, we could simply have the racists in the country just eating more meat. But it was it was a reflection of of uh, a jurisprudence that could not give an account of what we thought the central wrong was, hmm. the wrong at the heart of the case. And that really, uh, that really af- afflicted us. You know, um, your friend, uh, uh, yeah, go on. I, I think, Hallie, this is why when a lot of laymen, you know, people like me read an account of, a, of an important judicial decision, it just seems like, Wait, right, this right, is right. the rationale. This is the argument. That's not really central to the issue here. It seems like they they try so hard to get to the issue in in some right. round again the roundabout way. And mm-hmm. here's my here's my last question for you, Hadley. You've been arguing this. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning. You see this at, at the Wilson Institute. Uh, is your argument making some headway? Yes. Yes. Among the judiciary. Yes. Yes. Especially are they realizing people. sort of you if you give up the moral core, you're going to lose. Yes. Yes, that's right. All I can tell you, Mark, is that we're seeing younger judges who want to participate in our in our meetings. They want to send their clerks to us as students. And the, all the signs seem to be that pe- people get aware of the fact that at the, at the, there's, a, there's a moral hollowness at the core of this thing. It's an jurisprudence that can't give a, a coherent account of itself. Uh, it's so, very frustrating to 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 watch the, this this uh, again this evasive this evasiveness uh, going on. We want to see the moral arguments addressed exactly. directly. Please, that's right. That's right. That's right. It, it can, is is it really possible that Andrew Stevens? can turn himself into a woman and everybody else must be obliged to respect that judgment or they're creating an offense under the laws of the United States. I mean, this becomes utterly implausible. But you can do it only because, as you say, we're trying to use a contrived language in the law to separate these matters from from moral judgments. It's like, you know, Justice Holmes, the voice of the modern project in law, thought the object he hoped to, to... Banish all words of moral significance from the law altogether. I, I copied down that that quote from the book uh, in in my notes on on this boy. But he hey, he was willing to go all the way. Uh, Absolutely, th- these these people are committed and and they're clear. They're clear about their th- their goals. So, Ali, for 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 now, uh, I I hope the word continues to to get out. The book is Mere Natural Law: Originalism and the Anchoring Truths of the Constitution. Professor Arcus, thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.